All right, it's time for our new sermon series. And this series is called Jesus in the Shadows. And the big idea here is the Old Testament is not an irrelevant book for Christians. Uh, For Christians, the Old Testament is a book that is very, very relevant. It shows Jesus and it would have been Jesus' Bible when he walked the earth. Jesus would have sang from the Psalms. Those were the songs that he sang. And interestingly, Jesus knew who he was. He was conscious of his being the Messiah, being sent from God, come to save his people from their sins. Therefore, and uh, this is highlighted in a book called Your Old Testament Sermons Need to Get Saved. It's a great book. Uh, If you're interested in what's called redemptive historical hermeneutics or biblical theology, I recommend picking that up. My guess is most of you won't, but that's okay. Uh, What David King points out in that book is that Jesus would have read the Old Testament with an eye to seeing himself in the text. And I had never thought about that before David King pointed that out to me, that as Jesus would have sang Psalm chapter two, he would have seen himself in Psalm chapter two. As Jesus read about the Passover lamb, he would have seen himself as the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. As Jesus read Isaiah 53, he would have seen himself as the substitute, the one who would be crushed by the will of the Lord as a substitute for all those who would trust in him. So it's interesting to read the Old Testament and imagine Jesus reading and memorizing the Old Testament and him seeing himself in the text. Now, hermeneutics is a big theological word. Here's what it means. The art and science of biblical interpretation. In other words, how do we interpret the Bible? How do we read it? Okay, this is what it says. Now, what does it mean? And how do we know that's what it means? Okay, we can all read something. I'm sure you've been in these kind of Bible studies where someone reads three or four Bible verses and then everyone gets a chance to say, well, this is what it means to me. And often everybody's wrong. (laughs) It's not what it means. Just because it means that to you doesn't mean that's what it means. What does it actually mean to the hearers originally, to those recipients of the letter? Uh, What was the authorial intent? And then how does it mix and uh, contrast with the rest of scripture? An easy way to think about it is this. You ready? Here's a simple hermeneutics principle. Text in immediate context, text in the larger context of the book itself that it's found in, and then thirdly, text in context of the whole Bible. So if you could just remember that rule, text in context, you will go right, okay? And we never wanna play the game, well, what does this mean to me, okay? That is subjective, and that's what the the Latin uh, hermeneutics warriors would have called eisegeting means you read meaning into the text rather than exegeting which means you pull the meaning out of the text it's not what do i want this to mean for me it's what does this mean regardless of me does that make sense So what we never want to do with the Bible is make it just meaningful to me. This is what it means to me. This is what I want it to mean. This is my interpretation. No, that's not what we do with God's word. God's word is solid and timeless and its meaning does not change, though its application does have various expressions throughout the generations. So application is one thing, but Authorial intent and textual meaning is a whole nother thing. Now, I did that very quickly, but listen quickly, okay? Listen, biblical theology is what you're about to experience right now, okay? This series is going to be a series on biblical theology and redemptive historical hermeneutics. Remember, hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Biblical theology is this. 
When we start with a theme in the Bible and then we trace it through all 66 books of the Bible, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's called biblical theology. Now, in the Old Testament especially, there's all these mega themes and minor themes and types and shadows, and they all find their substance and their fulfillment in Jesus. Hey, that's what this four-part series is going to be about. The reason we want to do this at Advent is because we are awaiting the arrival of the second coming of Jesus. But on December 25th, we'll celebrate his first coming as we anticipate his second coming. And so tonight, we're going to start the series called Jesus in the Shadows, the shadows of the Old Testament. He's there But we need the New Testament, the light and revelation of the New Testament to shine on the Old Testament so we can see him clearly. Okay. Another thing that David King points out in your Old Testament sermons need to get saved is if we were to hear sermons from the Old Testament that a Jewish person could yes and amen who are not Christians who reject the the Old Testament, that's not a good Old Testament uh, interpretation. If a Jewish person could be like, absolutely, I'm with that, yes and amen, that's not good. Not for gospel Christians. So what is the New Testament light shining on the Old Testament bring out of the Old Testament that we couldn't see without the New Testament? Again, text in context, text in wider context of the book, text in context of the whole book, all 66, not just the 39 of the old. If you're with me, put your hand up. Excellent. I think I can move on. If you're confused about that, we'll talk more about it as the series rolls on. All right. So what are we going to talk about tonight? Tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus as our rest. Big theme, rest. Okay. Here's why I think this is important for this season. Many of us have had a chaotic and crazy 2020 into 2021. Anyone with me? Yeah. All of us. All of us have had crazy shifts in our lives. We've lost friends and family. We've lost jobs. We've lost friendships. We've lost church members. We have had a long period of loss and shift and earthquake. And there's been some joy in the midst of that, hasn't there? But I would say as I talk to people and as I reflect on my own uh, life over the last couple years, it's been hard. And I feel like my soul kind of needs to rest a bit. Anyone with me? Yeah. So let's start this series with Jesus as our rest. We desperately need soul rest and our God offers this much needed uh, gift to us. So there's a few types of people here that I think need to, hear, need to hear this. Number one, for many of us, our home during uh, post-COVID, if you will, or variant COVID, whatever season we're in right now, for, for many of us, our homes have become our offices. And we once worked somewhere, we traveled to work, and now we work exclusively from home. And so it's hard for us to figure out, okay, where is work and where is home? Where, where's the line drawn? Like, how do I do this? My notifications are on my smartphone all the time. And so I constantly get work stuff all through the night. I wake up and it's there. I try to go to lunch and it's buzzing at me on my, on my iPhone. It's, there's no clear, hard lines between punching in and punching out. That's a reality for many of us in here. And so I want to try to help you tonight with Jesus as our rest. Uh, Number two, there's a type of person that your life is so busy with tasks and to-dos and cleaning up and looking after and just kind of keeping everybody alive that you have no idea what rest is. And I know some of you are in here as well. You feel like, what day is it? Is it Tuesday? Oh, wait, it's Sunday. Oh, crap, we have church tonight. (laughs) That's your life because it's so many tasks. It's so many responsibilities. It's so much coming at you day in and day out. Sometimes you don't even know what day it is. And the third type of person, your life is uh, so overwhelmed with uh, tasks that you don't have the physical strength anymore to kind of do your responsibilities. 
Uh, you're so weary in body and emotions that maybe getting out of bed is even a task. And if you can accomplish that, it's like, man, I got out of bed today. It's a good day. And to think that's not a reality for some people, you don't know the people who are a part of your church. There's some people who struggle just to get out of bed. And so I, I want to commend to you the rest that Jesus offers. And then one more person. Maybe you're in here and you're like, rest is not a problem. Man, I sleep great. I don't use any melatonin. I don't drink NyQuil before bed. Uh, I have good dreams. I eat good. I exercise good. Listen, that's great. And I love you. Uh, we live in a world that is very hurried, very rushed, very fast paced. If we bring up the news from yesterday, it's like, oh, that's old news. Or even from this morning, right? Like how fast the Twitter feeds multiply and how fast the Facebook posts multiply. Uh, for you, friend, I want to say, how are you doing just unplugging, getting away from everyone else, and spending time with the one who offers the soul rest? I don't think any of us do that well in 2021. Okay, so those are the four people. Now, did you know that the Bible commands you to rest? How many of you knew that? The Bible actually says you must rest. Isn't that pretty awesome? Like, wouldn't it be great for God to command us to nap at a certain time during the day? Like, you shall nap at 3 p.m. Like, yes, this is a great. All the kids are like, no, but all the adults are like, yes, 3 p.m. This is called Sabbath, okay? If you didn't know, the, this is called Sabbath. Here's a Lexham Bible Dictionary definition. A day of complete rest from secular work. Secular means uh, non-religious, if you will. It comes from the word seculum, meaning the now in Latin, right now, secular. Uh, and, and it means to be uh, of complete rest from secular work following six days of labor established and modeled by God. The word Sabbath, which means cease in Hebrew, cease, rest, complete rest, or desist. Okay, so that's Sabbath. When was the Sabbath established? Think for one second. Think very beginning. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Right after God finished creating the heavens and the earth, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. That would be Saturday. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or set apart because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, if you're a theologian, you know that God doesn't need to rest because he's omnipotent or omnipotent, however you uh, word that, which means he's all powerful. There is no depletion of God when he goes out to work. When God completes a work week, he's not like, man, I'm exhausted. I need a Red Bull. Give me that dark roast with two extra shots of espresso. It's been a rough week. God never has depletion. I mean, can you imagine that? And so it wasn't that God needed to rest because he was weary or tired. Rather, God rested to reflect on what he had made and to enjoy his creation. Now, how many of you in here are creative types? Or at least you think yourself creative? Okay, more hands went up at the second. Uh, oftentimes, and, and I, I've been creating for many years, many of you understand this, that when you're done creating a project and you actually feel like, okay, this is done, you like to kind of step back and look at it and, and kind of admire what you created. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is kind of what God's doing here. His seventh day of rest is kind of stepping back. This is very good. It's not that he needed to rest because he was tired or drained. 
He was admiring his very good creation. In addition, God was setting a pattern for us to follow. And this would show up later in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is where you'll find the Ten Commandments. The Jewish people have left Egypt. They've left their bondage to the Egyptian slavery. And God has led them to Mount Sinai. And now Moses is up on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments and the law. Number four, remember the Sabbath day. Day seven, Saturday, we call it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to set it apart from other days. Saturday is special in God's economy. He rested on it, and now he commands his people, the Jewish people, in Mount Sinai to rest on it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Remember, Sabbath means a day of complete rest from secular work following six days of labor. It means cease, rest, complete rest, or desist. On it, you shall not do any work. Not, no work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner, uh, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, and now, now he points back, Moses does here, to the creation account in Genesis 2. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Creation mandate Therefore, in light of what God did on the creation day, setting uh, a, a standard for us, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He set it apart and made it special from other days. Now, what we have here is important to God. Okay, The seventh day was created by God. Humankind didn't create a day off. Uh, mankind didn't create a day off on Saturday. Uh, God created a day off on Saturday. Now, in the Jewish world, this is when uh, synagogue would take place. They would go to what we call church, and they would worship, and they would uh, fellowship, and they would not do their regular employment on the Sabbath, Saturday. God took this so serious. This was so important to him that he actually made it a death penalty for breaking it. He said, that's serious. Well, Exodus 35, two, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Like, dang. So to violate the Sabbath in God's Old Testament, Old Covenant economy was to put yourself in way of the death penalty. Now you're like, man, God's really serious about taking a day off. Quite. And here's something interesting. For us, we're like, is it that big a deal? But see, that's what we do when we compare ourselves with God. We say, well, this really isn't important to me, but what should be important to us is what is important to God. What we never want to do is say, well, that really doesn't matter to me. But God says, this really matters to me. If it matters to God, it should matter to his people. Amen? Okay, now some of you are like, wait a minute. I work all the time on Saturdays. <laughs> Am I in trouble? Okay, hold on to the end. Just, just hang in there with me, okay? But my point in Exodus 35 too is to say God really takes this rest thing serious. Wouldn't you say so? Pretty serious if he issues the death penalty for breaking it. Now, he even issues on the seventh year, a year of jubilee, he calls it, for the land itself. So agriculture, culture, uh, the, the Jews going into, uh, the Israelites going into the promised land. God says, listen, when you do that and you plant vineyards and you have uh, this massive uh, farm harvest produce, I want every seventh year to be a year of jubilee and you're to leave the land go. You're not to sow it. You're not to harvest it. You just let it be. Let it rest. 
And so he says, for six years, you shall sow your field. And for six years, you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. That's interesting. The land gets to take a, a year off. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Now, if you wanted to, we don't have time to do this, but if you wanted to go to another chapter later, Leviticus 26, God promises blessings for keeping his Sabbaths, but he also promises curses for not keeping his Sabbaths. And what happens is the the Jewish people do not keep the Sabbaths of the land, and so God sends them into exile. And so the land gets to keep the Sabbaths that they intentionally did not give it. All the years that they're in exile, God says the land's going to get its Sabbath while you're captured by Babylon. And you can read all about that in the Old Testament. We really don't have time right now. Now, something interesting began to happen in what's called the intertestamental period. See, what's the intertestamental period? It's the period between Malachi and Matthew. There's a 400 year gap between the time Malachi closed the Old Testament and by the time the New Testament opens up with probably Mark, actually, even though our New Testament starts with with, uh, Matthew. So the deal here is there's this intertestamental period and the Sabbath took on some interesting twists and turns. It got added to a lot from the fourth commandment. Now, this also is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Listen to the regulations that the Jewish people of the time added to. This is from the Damascus document. It dates to the first century BC. It outlines several limits uh, of activity on the Sabbath. Now, the first century is when Jesus came into the picture. Okay, so this is the world Jesus would have inhabited when we talk about where had the Sabbath come in between Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, you couldn't walk further than a thousand cubits. You couldn't drink outside the camp. You couldn't draw water into any vessel. You couldn't wear perfume. You couldn't open a sealed vessel, meaning if you had Tupperware in your Old Testament freezer, you couldn't pull it out and open it up and get out your mac and cheese or whatever. You, you couldn't assist an animal to give birth or help an animal out of a pit if it fell in. And you couldn't have sexual relations on the Sabbath. Okay? Now, all of this was not in the fourth commandment. Did you read any of that in there? No. It's, you're not to do any work. Not you, your daughter, your, your son, your male servant, your animals. But none of this. You can't even cook mac and cheese in the microwave on the Sabbath? Seriously? So much was added to the Sabbath laws so that there would be, if you will, here's the fence, here's the Sabbath, and it's holy. There's a fence around it. And so the lawyers, those experts in the law said, well, so, so we don't get near the fence. Let's build a fence around the fence. And then more lawyers had said, well, that fence is not enough. So let's build a fence around that second fence. Now let's build another fence around that third fence. And all of a sudden you got all these fences, but the actual prohibition is in the middle, but we're so far from it way out here that we can only take so many steps from our house. And Jesus wasn't even allowed to heal on the Sabbath. You remember that? Let's look at that. So in Mark 2, 23 to 28, actually what happens here is in Mark 3, it starts off, there's a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. You remember that story? And this story takes place right before the man with the withered hand. Okay, so I'll get to the man with the withered hand, but this is just prior. Okay, so Mark 2, 23 to 28, one Sabbath, Saturday, he was going through the grain fields. Remember agriculture culture. And in those days, the grain fields, so there'd be little paths in between the fields where people could walk. They were kind of like walking paths. And so you would, you would kind of cross through the fields and you would make your way in a culture where you walked or rode animals. You know, no motorbikes, no cars, no Teslas, just walking and animals, horses, camels, donkeys, 
That was your only means of transportation. And so you would walk through a grain field and there'd be grain on both sides, kind of like a corn maze. You guys have been through corn mazes, okay? They were going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And so you have that caterpillar looking piece of the grain and they're just popping off the little caterpillar piece. And it's funny that it says they were plucking. What that means is they were taking it in their hands and kind of rubbing it. And the little kernels of grain, think of like sunflower seeds, they would fall out and then they would pop the little pieces of grain into their mouth and chew it. It's what we get flour from. Okay? So the disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So uh, Jesus here pulls out this Old Testament story of David and his men, they, when they were hungry, they went in to the house of God and they took the bread that they were not supposed to eat. But Jesus says, that was okay in, that, in their case. You're like, that's weird. The reason it was okay was because for God, in that moment, in this specific instance, bread that was holy to the Lord was not as important as image bearers who were hungry. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is saying there's a higher principle here than the law against the common people eating the bread. And in the case of David and his men, they were starving and that was right for them because men are more important than laws against eating holy bread. Now that, that was not received well by them, believe me. That he would pull out this kind of obscure story to defend his Disciples harvesting, pulling grain on the Sabbath and, you know, pluck it. Basically, chewing sunflower seeds and spitting out the kernels, basically. Now, they were not violating the Sabbath. Now, here's the thing. When, when we read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John account, Jesus seems to always be getting in trouble on the Sabbath. But truth be told, he never violated that inner fence. He never did. Not even once. What he did do was he said, see this third ring fence? I'm going to hop right over that. You see this second ring fence? I'm going to hop right over that. And this inner fence here? I'm going to hop right over that. Now, he never went over the actual Sabbath fence that was prohibited. Not even once. Okay? He challenged their notions of the Sabbath. What was to be done and not to be done. And in Jesus' economy, it was okay for his disciples to get a little something from the grain field, to pull a little piece off and to have a snack as they walked through. Now look at 27 and 28 again. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now you see these, by the, by the intertestamental period and the first century, the Sabbath had been reversed. The Sabbath was full of regulations and full of laws so that you could be obedient on the Sabbath. But God's original intent was so that you would get a day of rest. And instead, it became this laborious list of rules. These, this, you were actually laboring more to keep the Sabbath than you were resting. And so Jesus says, look, guys, the Sabbath was made as a gift for man. You weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for you. You've got this all backwards. And then he says something that infuriated them. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, we did preach on this in Mark. So if you want to go back, in fact, Justin preached this text. Uh, you could go back and listen to the sermon. And then right on the heels of this, Jesus goes into the synagogue. And it starts Mark chapter three. And what Jesus does is he goes in, and he looks over the crowd and he sees a man with a withered hand, kind of like crippled hand. And all the eyes of the synagogue were on him to see what he would do if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. 
And if you remember the story, Jesus says, hey, you, come up here. And so the man with the withered hand walks up in front of everybody. And I can imagine Jesus with his arm around him. He says, let me ask you a question. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it better to give life or to kill? And what was their answer? Silence. And Jesus in anger looked at them and he said, stretch out your hand. And he stretches out his hand and it's whole. And they were plotting to kill him for this. Because in their view, he violated the Sabbath. Yet he was asking the right question. Is it better to give life on the Sabbath or to take life? To destroy or to heal? I'm paraphrasing, but this is the question he's asking. And they were more committed to their rules on the Sabbath. And Jesus was getting right down to the heart. Now, later, he actually criticizes them because, listen, he says, guys, if you have an animal that falls in a ditch, you'll pull it out because that's money to you. But you are not willing to go for me healing a person. And who is more valuable, the animal or the man? You hypocrites. And Jesus was, he was just nailing them right at the heart of their Sabbath keeping or supposed Sabbath keeping. But here's what I want to show you. In Matthew 28, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that was highly offensive. He said, I have authority over the Sabbath. Wait, you mean that same Sabbath that God said in Exodus, if you violate, you die? You're the Lord of the Sabbath? That's right. I rule the Sabbath. In fact, I created the Sabbath. And so here we see Jesus on the scene owning the Sabbath like no one had ever owned the Sabbath. Not even Moses would say something like this. And Moses was the one who received the command for the Sabbath. And here comes this Jesus of Nazareth, born to a quote-unquote virgin in their eyes. And here he is calling himself the Son of Man from Daniel 7, prophetic title of one who inherits the nations. And now he's calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Highly, highly offensive. Now, what I want to show you here is, is really important. So here's where we begin to see the fulfillment shift of the Sabbath. Okay. Jesus came as the Lord of the Sabbath but he didn't just come as the Lord or authority over the Sabbath. He came to fulfill it. You remember Jesus in the Gospels. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, including the Sabbath, including the fourth command. Jesus came to fulfill. Now, I'll, we're going to read Mark 15. We're going to stay in Mark. But maybe you've never seen Mark like this before. Okay, familiar text, but maybe not in light of the Sabbath. So Mark 15, 42 to 47. And when even, this is Jesus on the cross, okay? He's on the cross. He's dying for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. And this account is here for us. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Okay, now, Here's what I have not mentioned up until now. This is Friday. Okay, we call it what on Easter? Good Friday. Okay, now, do you remember at the end here of this text in Mark, they want to get Jesus off the cross on Friday before the Sabbath. You remember that? So when does the Sabbath start? Sundown, that's right. 6 p.m. on Friday, the Sabbath actually starts. You see, in the Jewish calendar, uh, 6 p.m. starts the new day. And for us, it's 12 midnight. But for them, it's actually 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So technically, the Sabbath in Jesus' day was Friday night at 6 p.m. to Saturday night at 6 p.m. 
And then at 6.10, you could finally open up the mac and cheese and have yourself some dinner. But not until 6 p.m. on Saturday. And so here is the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. So this is actually Friday because Friday is the day before the Sabbath because at 6 p.m. on Friday, their new day starts. Make sense? Now, day of preparation, what does that mean? Well, on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to cook. You were not allowed to grind corn or flour or anything. So you had to prepare for the next day on the day of preparation because no one could do any cooking or no one could do any food preparation. So you had to prepare the whole day for the Sabbath the day before. So double work on Thursday into Friday, the way we would think about it. And so this is the day. It's Friday before 6 p.m. And it's the preparation day. Verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea, a respected member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. This is uh, the ruling body of the Jewish people full of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priest and uh, ruling elders. Uh, He is a council member who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He is anticipating the coming of the kingdom. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, here's what you may have missed. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He came to do his father's will. He came to work while it was still day, like he said. When did he actually rest from his work? Well, he rested in the grave on the Sabbath. Didn't he? They want to take his body off before 6 p.m. and get him in the tomb on the Sabbath. And on the third day, when the Sabbath is over, first day of the week, he rises from the grave. Jesus literally rested on the Sabbath and fulfilled it. Have you ever realized that? Now, the reason this is important is because when we continue to follow through into the New Testament, Paul picks up on this. And Paul picks up on it very clearly in Colossians 2, 16 to 18. I don't know what that seven is there. Just ignore that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, the Colossians were getting all messed up about food laws and dietary laws and festivals and days. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Now, look at verse 17, guys. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Man, what a great image there. Okay, so if I put my hand out here, you can't see it. You kind of see it. See the shadow there? Okay. When a light is cast on my hand, the substance of my hand casts the shadow on the screen. Now, when Jesus is standing there and a light is cast on him, a shadow is put forth, and this text literally says that that shadow was the Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. What is the things to come? Jesus himself. But the substance, the thing that the light is casted on to create the shadow is Christ himself. Now, Paul pulls this out in Romans as well, but we'll wait till we get there in chapter 14. What Paul is literally saying here is Jesus has stood from creation itself 
And when God's light is cast on him, the shadow in part is the Sabbath. But he is the substance of the Sabbath. Man, what a great image. Meaning that the Sabbath is not so important as the substance that the light is cast on and the Sabbath being the shadow of. Now, what does this mean? Friends, this literally means that if the Sabbath was only shadowing a solid reality, who is Christ, then who is our rest? Jesus himself. Jesus is our rest. Now, I don't have time. I, I want to make some application before we leave, but just one more text, okay? The one more small text. In Hebrews, maybe Paul, we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews, but in chapter four, specifically in verse nine and 10, the Sabbath is picked up, okay? And in chapter four, the Sabbath is the theme. In fact, it's talking about uh, Joshua not being able to give the people of God rest from their enemies and, and rest. And so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, so there's a, there's a Sabbath rest for God's people. Old covenant, believing Jewish people. New covenant, born again Christians. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now think about that. When did God rest from his works? You remember? Genesis 2, the seventh day. Remember, God rested from all that he, uh, he rested from all the work of creating. And now what we have is when we enter God's rest, we rest from our works. Now, I think that this text is specifically pointing to a future Sabbath that awaits the people of God. Now, currently, right now, in the present, Jesus is our rest. He is our soul's rest. We do not have to fear punishment. We do not have to wonder if God will accept us. We don't have to work to gain God's approval. We don't have to do, do, do so that God will receive us. We are received in Christ so our souls can rest in him. He is our Sabbath rest. However, coming into the eschaton or into the future reality that is coming for us, there is a final rest for the people of God. And that rest will be from sin, temptation, the curse itself. His blessings will flow far as the curse is found. Friends, we are headed to a final rest where even the work we do in the new heavens and new earth will be restful work because the creation itself won't be warring against us. Now I could go, I could look out at you friends here and imagine your work, your labor, and I can easily imagine the opposition to your work. I can easily imagine it. it because I too work and I know the opposition to my work, meaning our work is cursed. But in the future reality, the curse is removed and even our work will be restful. Can you imagine that restful work? Is that a paradox? No, it's a reality that's coming for us, all based in what Christ has fulfilled. And so we will be free from the toil of having to kill our sin. Remember that sermon from last week? We will be free from the toil of having the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll be free from the toil of having our work war against us as we try to take dominion uh, like God told us to in the original creation. We will rest from our labors. We will rest finally in the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm so looking forward to that day. All right, give me three and a half minutes of application, okay? Three and a half minutes of application. Number one, are you resting in Christ? Has to be number one. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, a famous passage, but listen, listen. Come to me, 
all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the rest Jesus promises. Soul rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you even have a category for soul rest? We definitely have categories for soul anxiety, soul troubledness, soul fretting, right? Do we even have a category for soul restfulness? I wonder. Do we even understand that? But Jesus offers it. This is a promise. Come to me and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Now, this has to certainly mean rest of trying to earn God's favor. Okay, Abandon all of the legalism, abandon all of the doing to try to get God's favor and just come to me and you will have God's favor. And I will put my yoke on you, which means a burden, Okay, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the farming days of the first century even, uh, and even in some developing nations right now, there are animals yoked up to each other, and then those animals also are then hooked up to primitive plows and primitive farming machinery, which then plows the ground and harvests the ground. Okay, the yoke is whatever the animals are pulling, and so for us, Jesus says, I'm going to put a burden on you, but you know what? It's going to be really light. In fact, my burden is going to give you rest. My yoke is easy. It's light. Why? Because I bore the weight of it myself. I lived perfectly in your place under the law. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it, and I did. And then I went to the cross as a substitute for you that you might have forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of all the wrong you've done. I was buried in your place. I rested on the Sabbath and fulfilled it for you. And then on the third day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, I rose from the grave victorious. And friends, did you, now, did you know that now we are no longer obligated to keep the Saturday uh, Sabbath? Did you know that? That Jesus fulfilled it. The Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians. Didn't Paul say so much there in Colossians 2? Because don't let anyone judge you about a Sabbath, what you do and don't do on it. Why? Because it's just a shadow of the substance who is Christ himself. In addition, the New Testament church began to worship on what day of the week? The first day of the week, Sunday. So number two application point is this. Just because we don't have a mandate to rest on Saturday and not do work, we do still have a principle of taking restful days, hopefully one day a week. Now, this isn't binding like a law where you're going to have the death penalty if you fail to take one day of rest, but this is a gift. You see, the Sabbath was made as a gift for you not for you to try to keep it and get God's favor. And so God has given you the gift of a Sabbath or a day of rest. And also the church began to meet on the first day of the week. Now I'm not a Sunday Sabbatarian. Okay, now if that's confusing, there are many Christians who believe the Sabbath has just magically transferred to Sunday and all of the Old Testament laws about the the. 6 p.m. Friday into Saturday. Now they're just binding on Sundays, 12 p.m. to 12, okay? You can't do any work, no, no shopping even. You better not go to shop and save and get some Chips Ahoy cookies. You violate the Sabbath. You better not go to Starbucks and order a latte. You're violating the Sabbath. You better not punch in on Sunday or you're violating the Sabbath. I'm not a Sunday Sabbatarian. You might be happy to know that. But I do think that the principle of the Sabbath is still a gift for you. Friends, did you know that you are a human being and not a machine? In other words, God didn't create you to just labor and labor and labor and labor and get stuff done and check off the list and check off the list and check off the list. 
God wants you to intentionally, intentionally unplug. And so the question I have for you is, are you taking weekly time to intentionally rest from your labors, especially your labors that pay you money? Are you doing that? Or are you just, hey man, 24, seven, 365, I'm getting it in. You only live once. I'll, I'll rest when I die. God did not create you a machine, friend. He gave you the gift of a day off and that is worshipful to him when you take a day off. Have you ever thought about that? I can worship the Lord and glorify him by taking a day of rest. Does it have to be Sunday? It doesn't. It could be Monday. Did you know that the priests labored on the Sabbath? And so it couldn't have been a moral uh, command, right? Because we couldn't imagine God allowing lying on a certain day of the week or stealing on a certain day of the week or sexual immorality on a certain day of the week. But here, the priests were to labor on the Sabbath, meaning it couldn't have been moral. And so... It's not a moral weight on you, but it's a gift. Friends, you, when you take intentional time to rest and unplug, you are worshiping God by living with his creative design. You were not designed to work, 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 work. Number three, can you unplug from your technology? every so often. <laughs> Tyree's like, no, they can't. I agree, brother, they can't. But that's why I'm asking them to. Listen, friends, one of, one of the most beautiful technologies we have and one of the most cursed technologies we have is, is the Apple Watch and these smart watches. Now, I think they're cool, but when I'm around people with a watch, they're constantly, even in conversations, they're like, you know, like 17 times every 30 seconds, it's like, oh, your, your wrist is buzzing again? And people love it. They're just like, I need to know what's going on. Oh, so-and-so posted. Oh, so-and-so texted me. Oh, I'm getting a call right now. Man, I want to ask you, if you have one of these devices, can you take it off? Can you maybe not just turn your phone on airplane mode, but actually turn it off? Can you? I remember one time I was at the grocery store and uh, there was this older lady. I don't know how old she was. She was older than me. And, and I had my phone out and, you know, I was like, you know, working. This is, so for me, this is where I get the most work done, by the way. I call all of you. I text all of you. I schedule with all of you. I answer emails. I listen to sermons. I listen to audiobooks. This thing for me, if I didn't have this, I would lose many hours of weekly work. You want to know one of the, one of the best vacations I've ever had? was when I went to the beach in South Beach, uh, South, it wasn't South Beach, it was uh, West Palm Beach in Florida. And I was so excited to see the ocean, I ran into the ocean with all my clothes on and here my brand new iPhone 5 was in my pocket. And the 5s were not waterproof yet. And, and so I'm just enjoying the way, and I'm like, oh my gosh, my phone, you know, I pull it out, I'm like, remember the rice baths? It was like right into the rice. And you know what? I was like so distraught because I just got this phone. And you know what? It ended up being the best vacation ever because <laughs> no one could get a hold of me. And I couldn't check any emails because I didn't have a computer or a laptop or anything. I wasn't going to the lobby and logging onto that thing. Man, I was like unplugged completely. And I got a vision for the new heavens and the new earth. A technologyless world. I'm just kidding. I think there will be fantastic tech in the, in the new heavens and new earth. What I'm saying is it was so restful to unplug, yet it seemed so tragic to me when it happened. So the old lady, older lady, older than me. I'm on my phone, you know, I'm doing something. And, and she, she says something like this to me. You know, we're parked next to each other at Walmart or wherever we were, Aldi. And she's like, you know, I'll never have one of those. She said, because you have to be on it all the time. And I was like, you know, you can turn it off. And her eyes widened. 
And she was like, I never thought of that. <laughs> it was like I gave her an epiphany. You can actually turn them off. So, so I know some of, you, some of you in here are thinking, is this a serious application point? It is very serious. Because when was the last time you turned off your device? Now, I, so you all know I do a lot of counseling because I counsel a lot of you. But did you know I also get counsel? Okay, just like Eddie says, uh, we who are teachers sometimes get to teach, but we're always learning in the same way. I who counsel others also receive counsel. Okay, and so one of my counselors, I emailed, I had a question and uh, over Thanksgiving break, I got this reply back. Okay, and this sometimes is what you will have to do to feel like, okay, I can unplug. Okay, I'm gonna leave names out and I'm gonna leave uh, the important details out. I will be out of the office and not responding to emails from November 24th to the 28th for the Thanksgiving holiday. If you have questions or, or concerns regarding blank, please contact blank at this email. If you have questions regarding blank counseling, please email this. If you have an emergency of any kind, please contact local emergency authorities, 911, police, local hospitals, or if you're feeling suicidal, 1-800-973-TALK. Hey, now for some of you, you will have to set up an email like that to feel like I can unplug. And I would say, do it. If you feel like you're so needed that you have to do something like that, set up, if this is a problem, contact this person. If this is a problem, contact this person. If you're feeling suicidal, call this person. You need to do that then and unplug. Amen? Yeah, we're needed, but you're not God. Neither am I. Praise God. Okay, number four. Are you worshiping on the first day of the week? Okay, now, I did say I'm not a Sunday Sabbatarian, but did you know that the accounts in Acts and post-resurrection all take place on the first day of the week? Here's one of them. In Acts 20, verse 7, we read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, probably communion, meals, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he proclaimed his speech until midnight. This is the story when Eutychus falls out of the window and dies. Do you remember that? Paul preached long into the night. Tony Marita said, that's a killer sermon right there, man. If you can literally kill somebody. And so he goes down and he prays for him and, and he revives. He comes back from the dead. Okay, but the point here is the church is meeting when? On the first day of the week. In addition, when you read the early accounts of, of the temple worship, they were meeting on the first day of the week. Why? Because it was the Sabbath? No, because it was the Lord's day, the resurrection day. And so John in Revelation says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When is the Lord's day? Sunday. And so we have the first day of the week as a pattern for gathered worship. Listen, friends, this is what Christians do. And I'm going to be so bold as to say, if this is not what you do, maybe you're not a Christian. Because Christians gather. Did you know that the church literally means a people called out but gathered? And so if you never gather with the church, maybe you're not a part of the church. And I'm not trying to be harsh. I am trying to lovingly warn whoever's listening to this, whenever you're listening to this, but especially you guys in this room. Now you're here, so you don't have to feel that bad. right? You're gathered right now in the sound of this sermon as the church. But as the writer to the Hebrew says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some but rather encourage one another daily as you see the day approaching, judgment day. And so friends, are you gathering on the Lord's day to worship with the people of God who are gathering all over the globe on the first day of the week? 
Christians should be gathered for worship. Now I understand we're in variant COVID days. I get it. Okay, and so for some of you, you have an excuse. If you are very concerned about COVID or your job or your people you care for or there's a, a, a circumstance, I get it, okay? So 2020 into 2021 and probably into 2022, you have an excuse. But friends, my point is the church gathers and worships the Lord with song, with prayer, with hearing from the word, with taking communion and with baptism and fellowship. How are you doing? It's not an option for Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, nothing binding you. But if you're a Christian, you are to gather with the church just by simple implication of you being the church. Literally, the word means called out ones who are gathered. All right, last one. Are you looking forward to that final day of rest? So, so when it feels so labor intensive now, and Jesus' burden does not feel light, and his yoke does not feel easy, are you looking forward to a future where all the labor has ceased? The toil, the struggle, the sweat, the blood, the tears when we will have restful work. We sing a song here called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, but we don't often sing this verse. So listen to it closely. It illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. This is a looking forward to that day when freed from sinning, when freed from labor, when freed from depression and struggle and death and disease and COVID. Friends, are you looking forward to that final rest when now it seems there is none or it is so hard to come by? I hope you are. I pray you are. It is yours to look forward to in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, this Lord's day. We thank you for this Sabbath, this gift of a day of rest. Father, most importantly, we want our souls to be resting in Christ, resting from the labors to earn your favor. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, even the Sabbath law is fulfilled. Father, I do pray for my friends that you would give us creative ways to unplug and to find time with you to recharge to build our relationship up, to be in your presence. God, I pray that during this crazy, chaotic season right before Christmas, I pray that we would intentionally take time to rest. Rest our souls in Christ. Rest our bodies from labor and to draw near and find you soul-satisfying. I thank you that in Jesus, Father, we have all that we need for relationship with you and for the gift of soul rest in Christ. May you give us that gift, I pray. All who are in this room tonight, would you give us this gift of soul rest, of freedom of soul, no more burden to carry, but only what is easy and light. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect work in our place so that we can rest in you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, he who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh and conquered death's sting for us. So my hope is that you will know 
the soul rest that Jesus offers us. It is found only in him. We have this soul rest by being united to Christ. His work credited to us. Even his fulfilling the Sabbath is ours. And so now us united to him, we are pleasing to God. Our souls can rest in Christ. He was faithful even when we were and are faithless. This is why Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He would accomplish this by the cross, his body broken, his blood shed. Let's remember Jesus' sacrifice for us together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful reminder every single week when we gather of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Living perfectly, dying as a substitute, and Father, you being pleased with his sacrifice and raising him from the dead. We thank you that we are hidden in Christ. What is true of him is true of us. Pray, Father, in this Christmas season, as it gets up and rolling and is already rolling, that we would take time to rest. Rest our souls in your presence. Rest our weariness in your health and strength. To rest our seeking to earn your favor with Christ's already earning it. God, may we find you present to us in the days to come. We thank you for Jesus in our place. And it's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.